we are here as a multi-dimensional being with uh, a spiritual dimension, an intuitive dimension, an emotional dimension, cognitive, biological, social, so many dimensions to our being. And here we are on this ecological planet that has equally as much complexity within it and we are so dependable upon it. So how can we weave these threads together uh, in a way that builds coherence so it, it's singing together as a kind of harmony and it's regenerative so that by us being here, it actually supports the breathing earth um, and we start to, to be in harmony as many ancient cultures were so brilliantly. beautiful people of the world listening right now <laughs> welcome to another episode of threads of the sun my name is yosha layton i am your host this is a podcast about strengthening our intuition unraveling from our conditioning and returning to nature's wisdom if this is your first time tuning in, hello and welcome. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on any future episodes. And it is really nice to have you here. And if you've been with me for a little while, hello and welcome back. I have been loving this podcast so much. I've been getting, yeah, such wonderful feedback lately. And I've just been feeling so invigorated and alive and supported in this space and in this medium which is just such a good feeling um and today i have a really beautiful episode that i'm very excited to be bringing to your ears we are joined by the brilliant thinker very eloquent speaker and philosophical genius al jeffrey who i also get the pleasure of calling a dear friend of mine um, Al is an internationally renowned community designer, group facilitator, author, and leadership expert, and all of his work is in service to our hyper-connected yet fragmented world. As I was doing my research for how to formally intro Al, other than he's my friend who I love dearly, um, I found all the stuff on his website, some of which I had no idea about, which is pretty cool, Al. <laughs> he was listed in the top 30 under 30 entrepreneurs in Australia twice in a row. He is a three times TEDx speaker. He was nominated for Young Australian of the Year. He is the author of the forthcoming book, Modern Tribe. He is featured in Forbes, Fast Company, The Age, and more for his insight into innovation, leadership, and social change. Um, and he has reached over 5,000 people globally through facilitated programs since 2015. So... Boom, Al, what a boss. <laughs> and in this deliciously philosophical episode, um, it is, yeah, Al and I, we thrive in the element of air and in the intellectual realm. So I had such a fun time interviewing him and getting to know more about his work. Um, I really feel like there's some great nuggets of gold in there, some beautiful, um, deep questions to ruminate and ponder on, um, and ideas to philosophize that I think you'll all really enjoy and take away from today's episode. 
And just before we get stuck into the episode, I'd like to say a really heartfelt thank you to my community over on my Patreon. As you guys know, I do all the recording, editing, back-end podcast stuff by myself, which does take more time than you'll probably think. So your support really is the backbone of this podcast and allows me to continue making more episodes and sharing these conversations. Every month, myself and my podcast guests share an offering as gratitude for your support. And this month, Al has generously offered to share his latest creation, a really beautiful and creative uh, yearly self-reflection journal called the Bloom Journal, which you can find the digital version of on my Patreon page. It takes you through the Bloom process of hindsight, insight and foresight, and it supports you in looking back on the year that has been harvesting insights and planting seeds for the year ahead. And of course, it's not only timely for the end of the Gregorian year, but it's suitable for of course, any cycle and rhythm that you may find yourself in. I used it about this time last year. Honestly, I think we all need it after the year we've just had collectively. I'm personally really looking forward to creating some sacred space for myself next month and having the Bloom Journal as a guide to reflect on everything that has surfaced and moved through me this year. So that is now available for all of you gorgeous souls supporting the podcast on Patreon. And if you are curious, follow the Patreon link in the show notes below and consider joining your fellow listeners in supporting this podcast while also receiving exclusive episodes, little videos, writing resources and giveaways that I do. I love you all so much. Let's get stuck into this conversation with Al Jeffrey. Hi, darling Al. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Yash. It's such a pleasure <laughs> to, uh, yeah, to be on the show. I know we're both feeling quite tender and soft today. We both have mm. so much <laughs> moving through and with us right now. And I just thought we could start by being really real with everybody listening. And, you know, I thought we could just start with like, what's alive for you right now? How are you feeling? What's going on? <laughs> mm. um, well, I mean, I love realness. So thank you for mm. the invitation. Um, of for me, I suppose physically, I just went for a run. So I'm feeling nice and in my animal body, quite alive, my senses awake, emotionally, yeah, quite reflective, tender, um, a little bit emotionally tired. Um, yeah, really feeling many things that have been in some ways overwhelming and confronting. Uh, and so there's a little bit of uh, just feeling quite mellow and somber uh, mm. personally. Yeah. Yeah. I resonate <laughs> for everybody listening. I'm also feeling quite emotionally tired and my heart feels very tender and yeah, I think it's, it's there's some beauty in that as well, you know, still showing up to record this podcast and, you know, we've rescheduled a number of times cause there's been, you know, other situations and circumstances that have come in, but you know, everything is, is happening in its divine perfection. And I really feel like this is kind of the perfect space for us to be in to share. And, you know, so often we need, we feel like we need to be operating at this kind of certain level or like, 
especially as podcast hosts, like both of us having a podcast, you know, and feeling Mm. like this pressure to kind of be upbeat or like on it all the time. And there's a certain element of beauty and just like really showing up as we are. And thank you for, for showing up and yeah, diving into this, into this conversation. And I'm excited to see where it goes in all of the gentle softness and um, reflection kind of space that we're in. I know for me in hosting a podcast, I really do hope that the conversations and the platform that is the podcast models a culture and a way of being that is honoring of all of ourselves, including these bits that are maybe not so well sequenced together and Mm. tamed. Um, And so, yeah, I really admire uh, conversations like this. Um, Mm. And I, I, as a listener, really enjoy listening to these conversations. There's just such permission. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Mm. That's what came up for me when you were just speaking, just permission to be. Mm. So here we are. Here we are, everybody. (laughs) I did have that piece from David White as well, if you feel that. Oh, yes, absolutely. Please share. Please share. This was, um, for those who do know me, you'll know my absolute admiration uh, for David White. And his words are absolute medicine to me. And they definitely were the last few days. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so this is a little piece that feels quite relevant now. Mm. And it says, no matter how far away you are from yourself or how exiled you feel from your contribution to the world, as a human being, all you have to do is enumerate exactly the way you don't feel at home in the world. The moment you've uttered the exact dimensionality of your exile, you're already on your way home. Mm. Arrival. Arrival. Here we are. (laughs) Mm -hmm. All right. So podcast hat on, here we go. <laughs> so Al, you're a, a community designer. You're a meditation teacher, a public speaker. You're all about self and community development. You host a podcast as well called Spaces Between, which is really beautiful for anybody listening. I highly recommend to check it out. Um, you're also studying psychotherapy. Um, there's a lot of different threads and yeah, such a beautiful mix of um, what you do for work in the world. And I'd love to begin with, um, if you would like to do so, by sharing a little bit of your backstory um, and sort of your upbringing and sort of where you grew up and kind of your life journey in a bit of a nutshell. And Mm -hmm. yeah, share some of the kind of pivotal moments or some of the little whispers that um, were turning points or, or sort of little breadcrumbs that led you to where you are now. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, my understanding of my story, I find it funny that we, I suppose we tell our stories, but we constantly find out more and more about ourselves and, and the selves that live within us that were, you know, four-year-old me or 11-year-old me. And so I'm still uncovering parts of my story and things mm-hmm. click in. I'm like, oh, wow, That's, that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, so I suppose I just want to frame to say that this is no way a, a complete retelling of, of a sequence of events that it's continually unfolding. And um, I find myself, I suppose it, when I'm asked these questions, I always ask myself as well, how can I tell this story in a way maybe I haven't told it yet, rather than just continually telling it in the same way um, or with the same tone. Uh, and so we'll see, see what comes up. But Um, I grew up, my mum is Indian, uh, which is where I get my natural tan. 
very grateful for that. And my dad, um, his last four generations were in Australia. So with Scottish and Irish heritage. Um, so they met, uh, in a time when in Australia, there was still the, the keep Australia white law. Uh, and it was very risky and transgressive for an Indian woman to, to marry or be in relationship with, um, with an Australian man. Uh, and so I suppose that in some sense, I've really learned how, how important that is for my story in recognizing kind of the line of transgressive moves within my family mm. that for dad, it's quite a, a transgressive act to, to marry an Indian woman. Um, and, and to stay together. And so it just, for me, just really shows how much love there was there to take that amount of risk. Um, I grew up out in the mountains in Belgrave, up in the hills. So I love uh, green or dense green forests and um, mountains. Um, and I suppose, yeah, I mean, I can track back to, I suppose when this real journey of kind of self-inquiry and creation and contemplation began was about 12 um, when I was sitting on the couch watching Jumanji with my older brother um, mm. and a world vision ad came up on the television um, and it was an ad around sponsoring a child and that was the first time at 12 years old that I was actually able to conceptualize what that ad meant about the state of the world. Mm. Uh, I was sitting there eating my twisties with my brother on a comfy couch under a roof watching Jumanji and to just really feel for the first time the reality that um, there are millions uh, and billions of people on the other side of the world and all around the world who require such immense support to simply have food and shelter and their basic needs met. And I felt deeply embarrassed um, and mm. confused. And that's what kind of started my, my inquiry into uh, really it was how can I be a greater service to the world? Mm. Um, and at the time I looked to people like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and Richard Branson, people who were kind of enterprising. Um, and I just started to see business and entrepreneurship as a real force for, for change. Mm -hmm. um, at the age of 12, would you say? At the yeah. Age of 12? Wow. That's, that's young. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I was reading Richard Branson's autobiography and just started to, I suppose my dad is a business owner as well. So I've had a, a bit of an enterprising thread in the family. Uh, and so at the age of 12, started to, uh, to think about how might I make an impact through business or entrepreneurship. Um, and in my teenage years, started up a number of small social enterprises, um, on a clothing brand, uh, and events and talent management um, brand and a couple of other online platforms. But I suppose looking back also really saw, so when I was about 19, um, started to realize that whilst it was driven by this impact impulse to make a difference and to really be of impact, um, as a, as a queer man growing up in a straight world, um, also really started to see and am now just really starting to uncover how, how this entrepreneurial identity and this connection to work and doing was really quite a strong flight uh, reaction or avoidance mechanism from the shame I felt in my sexuality in my teenage years. Um, 
and how much of a brilliant show in some sense uh, I was able to put on to distract myself from the reality of the shame and the absolute, uh, yeah, not enoughness and just feeling like I just wanted to be no one in some, well, I felt like no one. I felt like who I really was, was, was seen as being no one in the world. And so uh, following this entrepreneurial thread um, and me crafting this entrepreneurial identity and becoming quite successful at it was a great mask. Uh, mm. is what I, I came to see later on. Of course, I built many great skills and uh, relationships along the way, um, but also started to acknowledge that, wow, it's also fueled by a deep pit of shame. Um, and so it wasn't until when I was 19, I was chosen as one of 10 young entrepreneurs from around the world to be part of a, an accelerator program where they chose 10 people from around the world between the ages of 18 and 24 to live in Boulder in log cabins at a place called Chautauqua, a little learning village um, for seven months. And we lived together in community and uh, we were there to support each other in really leaning into ourselves and letting our souls speak uh, and creating the social enterprises that we we're creating at the time. And so they connected us to funding, to coaches, to mentors. And every day we had workshops, whether it was around self and spiritual transformation or whether it was around project creation um, and entrepreneurship. And that was the first time I really felt seen mm. sitting in circle and being able to share these, yeah, these questions, these confusions I had being able to share about my sexuality. And at the time I still wouldn't really own my sexuality, but I was able to question it openly at least and be mm. seen as okay in that too. Um, and it was a real experience of, I mean, the whole slogan for the program was protect your courage. And the whole space was set up to be a place where your courage, your truth, your heart was protected and you mm. could really come into yourself. Mm. Um, and so that was my real experience of being witnessed in my process in community. Um, and on the last day we sat in a did almost every day. And the question was, what's one thing we want to offer the circle? that we spent the last seven months very intimately in process with. And what's one thing we would ask for from the circle. And my ask was that wherever we go back to our 10 different countries around the world, we, cre we create spaces safe enough such as this so that whoever's in those spaces, their souls can speak. Um, so that when we go around the world, we know there are places that protect our courage. Um, and that became basically my mission from then on out is from the inside out to, to reweave spaces such as that, that protect our courage or that enable and invite the wholeness of who we are to come to, to come forward to our lives. Um, and that's, I suppose, been quite a, yeah, quite a framing mission for me since then, just feeling the, the possibility, the potential that arises quite organically and emergently from places that protect courage and hold space for wholeness um, and beautiful things happen. Uh, and so that's, yeah, I suppose that's kind of where my current inquiry really, uh, yeah, emerged from. Two questions kind of arose for me when you were speaking. Um, what do you feel like was the catalyst or yeah, what helped kind of catalyze that realization that revealed 
your kind of entrepreneurial identity was a mask? Like, was it that experience of living in community in Boulder where it was a safe space for you to kind of own yourself and be authentically you? And then kind of through that experience, you realized kind of what was happening or was there something else that kind of helped um, reveal or uncover that kind of truth? Mm. Um, It was, I mean, it started to, uh, that, that little and confronting revelation started to brew then when I felt so safe and seen. Um, but I suppose at that time I wasn't really standing, standing in my queerness very strongly. Mm. I was still, um, questioning and coming to terms with and accepting. Um, so it wasn't until my, my first same sex relationship, which came about a year when I, after I got back from America, Mm -hmm. um, that and that's when I openly came out or I might say let in my family mm-hmm. and, and the world around me um and it wasn't until then I I fell into a, a big probably 12 month season of of suffering of darkness um and uh in me then accepting my queerness um then arose the real grief and mourning for who I was pretending to be up until that point. Mm. And so there was this big period of grief and mourning and shedding this entrepreneurial identity. Um, so it took me to feel the safety of, uh, of real intimacy with somebody and for me to be standing in my queerness, for me to realize um, who I'd been in the world and, and to myself up until that point um, and to feel yeah really confused and really frustrated and angry um, and really sad that wow like the hiding that took place um, was a lot yeah it was it's I mean it's still an unfolding process of me noticing oh there's another little thread of that kind of entrepreneurial identity or that addiction to work that's really rooted in a, a shame um, and so it's still unraveling and I, I imagine it will for quite some time. Um, but the awareness of it started to really surface in the holding of my first real intimate partnership. Mm. Yeah, that, w- that was kind of my second question for you was like, how was that process of unraveling from that entrepreneurial identity? And yeah, I guess, there, yeah, like you, like you mentioned, there was a lot of grief in the letting go. And mm. I can I can really resonate with that because, yeah. I was going to say allowing endings. Like it's also, uh, I catch myself talking about it as if that entrepreneurial period of my life sometimes is a mistake. And, you know, I spoke about it at the beginning, me noticing how I tell this story because I do tell it often. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a good, maybe the last two years, I'd tell this story and those listening could probably sense a kind of resentment against my entrepreneurial years. Um, but now it's about, no, I learned like it, it's okay. There's great compassion for that. At that time it was necessary. And so much from, from that, um, the creative lives in me. It's, it's not that I'm now trying to relinquish the entrepreneurial, the, the creative, I'm reframing my relationship with him. I'd love to go into kind of from that place um, and speak to your kind of larger philosophy. Um, 
I really see, you know, you and the work that you do in the world is so important and I really admire what you do and how you show up. Um, I really feel like you're kind of broadening the horizons and encompassing a larger philosophy of, of what I really see as um, evolving consciousness and culture and, as you put it, restoring wholeness and self and society. And mm. within that, you really break that down into some more kind of digestible and practical parts and different threads within your work, you know, two of them being um, these kind of personal technologies, as you call them, and then also the social technologies. Um, and I'd love to go into both the personal and the social technologies in a moment, but I was wondering if we could, um, yeah, perhaps just go into what is your kind of core philosophy and kind of speak to the kind of umbrella of what, um, all of your work and, and everything kind of falls under. Mm. Yeah. Um, I love that we start there because uh, often, you know, the typical question of what is it that you do comes up and uh, I don't know about you, but for me that brings up a lot of anxiety because there's quite a lot that I do. There's quite, <laughs> I know. <laughs> quite, quite a many interests that I honor and follow um, and they are all linked. Um and so because there are multiple threads to my work, because I'm deeply curious about them and I see how they're linked in reweaving a system and a society um, from the inside out, um, it does take a philosophy to weave these multiple threads together. Otherwise they feel like kind of disparate parts and don't make sense. And people think you're crazy and yes. you'll get there one day and work out what you actually want to do. Yeah. A larger philosophy is so important and yeah, sorry to interrupt, but that's what I really resonate and just like appreciate what you do because you really kind of beautifully succinctly kind of put it all together. And I feel mm. that's really inspiring to me because I, I resonate with your kind of um, journey with when people ask you, what do you do? And it's kind of like, Oh man, I do so many different things. And there's not like, a, it's not like I'm an accountant or a lawyer. Like I don't have a word to describe what it is that I do, but I have all mm -hmm. of these different interests and all of these different threads, but here is my larger philosophy that weaves them all together. So the philosophy really is, I mean, in the phrase and part of, yeah, my, my kind of mission or inquiry here, how do we restore wholeness in self and society for me is really about um, how do we live in relationship to the whole again? And by that, I mean, how do we start to weave together the aspects of being a, a, maybe a spiritual being in a, in a human flesh body uh, and all of the complexity that this brings with it. Um, we are here as a multi-dimensional being with uh, a spiritual dimension, an intuitive dimension, an emotional dimension, cognitive, biological, social, so many dimensions to our being. And here we are on this ecological planet that has um, equally as much complexity within it and we are so dependable upon it. So mm -hmm. how can we weave these threads together uh, in a way that builds coherence so it it's um, singing together as a kind of harmony and it's regenerative so that by us being here, it actually supports the breathing earth um, and we start to, to be in harmony as many ancient cultures were so brilliantly. Um, and so in philosophy, there's the idea of your ontology, which is your idea of what is. So someone's ontology is their notion of reality. Um, so some people's ontology is really broad and they are able to hold otherness. They're able to sit against opposite somebody who has a very different story to them 
and hold compassion for them. Some people's ontology might be a little bit more narrow. And so they really struggle with seeing, um, seeing someone with opposing belief systems. Um, so the philosophy is really about how, how broad can our ontology be? Or there's a lot of talk at the moment, and thank God, about moving beyond kind of white or patriarchal epistemology. And epistemology is a ways of knowing, ways of being, ways of behaving, but ways of relating to the world. So a lot of indigenous uh, epistemologies were very interwoven with, with their ecology, with their, um, with their environments. And so my philosophy is really how much can we, I suppose, expand the capacities of our mind and our heart. So our cognitive abilities and our maybe emotional or relational abilities to be able to hold space for more of what is. And in that way, we have more grace in actually meeting life, in actually meeting each other. Um, uh, I mean, it's in a lot of Buddhist philosophy that a lot of our anxiety, a lot of our um, challenge is in the difference between or the space between our expectation and, and reality. Or you could say the difference between our ontology, our thought of what is and what's meant to be, mm-hmm. and reality as it is, mm-hmm. which is this emergent process. Um, and so I suppose my core philosophy is what are the, the personal, um, practices and, uh, competences that we need as individuals, um, to be able to be in relationship to the whole, how do we need to expand our ways of knowing our ways of feeling our ways of relating so that we can gracefully be in, in relationship with the whole, the wholeness of who we are. And also socially, what relational, capacities and tools do we need so that together we can be in relationship to the whole and start to reweave a culture and a society that is regenerative? Mm. I guess I have like a couple of questions around that before we go into the personal and the social kind of technologies and what two questions. Why do you feel like there is this kind of divisional energy and this this illusion of separateness and you know this kind of fragmented society that we live in like Mm. why do you feel that is present and alive and then secondly why is it important to begin to reweave these things together and to begin to you know integrate wholeness back into self and society Mm. for me uh and again maybe philosophically when maybe we started to depart from living with maybe some of our more indigenous ways of being. And of course, when I say indigenous cultures, I always just like to mention that by no means, uh, I suppose, uh, batching or combining all indigenous cultures into just the term indigenous cultures. Um, do I mean to distill or, um, kind of dilute the absolute diversity of indigenous cultures that there are, but many, many of them um, had ways of being that were in relationship to the whole, at least more than we are. Um, And when Western philosophy started to come in and people like Socrates famously, um, or Descartes famously said, I think, therefore I am. um, And we started to identify with thought. We started to identify with mind and that we the idea that we create our reality through our thinking minds. Um, Therefore we are separate 
from the world. The world is, is our creation through our thinking mind. Um, and all of a sudden everything is seen as an object for our benefit. Um, and there's this kind of, um, yeah, this godlike mentality that we, we use the world for our benefit, for our betterment. Um, and we're no longer in relationship to the world around us, including others, all other beings, um, because we're a separate entity. Um, so yeah, my, my sense is that it kind of began then when Western philosophy started to, to really come in and create what is known as the, the Cartesian split, um, from Descartes philosophy of, I think, therefore I am. Um, and the Cartesian split says that the mind is separate from the body. The mind is separate from the world. Uh, and we create our, our reality through thought. And so that's, that's the foundational then ontology of reality is that thought is everything. Um, and it's separate from the world. Um, and so straight away that discounts and others things like the spiritual dimension, the emotional dimension, the embodied and somatic dimension, the ecological world, um, and others, the relational world. Um, and so foundationally, I see that's, that's kind of where it began. And then we had the agricultural era, um, industrial era. And now we've got the, many people are calling the information era or, um, yeah, many, there's many terms for it. Um, mm. but that's fundamentally where I, I see that it kind of began is that philosophical disconnect from mind or self and world. Mm. Um, and then everything else became object for our betterment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well mm. put, well put, you know, I suppose my story, it was just a fragment of our story and our greater story is that we live in a culture that shoulds us and has us peg ourselves against a set of ideals. Um, and so inherently many, many of us exist and are brought up in a culture that imbues us with a kind of trance of unworthiness and shame. Mm. And straight away, we end up pursuing paths that are not in alignment with soul. They're in alignment with protecting ourselves against shame. Um, and so culturally uh, and therefore psychologically, um, we're also pegged against the whole. Um, straight away, we're not in relationship to, to the whole or to, um, to soul. So I love how you kind of um, break this kind of core philosophy down into um, two kind of branches and then from there, multiple branches. Um, and, you, you know, you've got the, these kind of personal technologies on one hand and then these, you know, social technologies, as you call them, on the other hand. And I was wondering, yeah, could we dive into both of those and just share, yeah, kind of maybe some more like practical um, aspects to this work and what are some of these personal technologies and what are some of these social technologies and how you weave them into your work and how um, they support this kind of core philosophy. Sure. Um, the personal technologies, I, and I mean, it's a phrase, uh, I mean, I use technologies because it's uh, a lot of my work also is done in the kind of intersection of exponential technologies, companies that are using expert exponential technologies to solve grand challenges, um, spirituality and leadership. And so I use kind of 
the word technology is because it fits that mm. kind of mm. audience and they get it. But personal technologies, I mean the uh, intrapersonal, so the inner technologies. Um, another way of talking about this is the, the inner work that we do within ourselves, the outer work, our work in the world, our creation, and the interwork, the work between us, the relational aspect. Um, so the personal technologies is the inner work. And um, I suppose there are many, many fragments to it, of course, but I, and I'm just going to offer these, I suppose, as, as little reflective points, but, and as notes that I've found really useful. But um, the first one is building a relationship to slowness. I think this is in, just incredibly important in our Western culture. Um, without slowness, uh, Tara Brock says that if we move half, to, half as fast, we notice twice as much. Um, That's so which beautiful. Which I love. Yeah. Mm. So simple. Mm. Yeah, right? Mm. Um, but without slowness, without the ability to pause, we simply cannot expand our, our perceptions of what is. Um, our yeah ontology or our kind of a bag of possibilities um, without pause you cannot disrupt a pattern um, but pause feels so hard in our culture it is a very radical act to take pause and to own it um, and so there is great gift in building a familiarity with slowness um, and in slowness we notice so much so the next I suppose piece for me is a kind of contemplative or self-reflective practice. And this is about broadening the um, a kind of metacognition or ability to notice more and more of the world and ourselves. There are things that we push out of our awareness because it's uncomfortable at a time. Uh, it's overwhelming, such as traumatic events um, or yeah, it's threatening. So as a protective mechanism, we push things out of our awareness. Mm. Um, this invitation is to include more and more in our awareness again, to become aware of more of ourselves and therefore more of, um, more of the whole. Um, and so once we've given ourselves permission to slow down, we can start to go through any number of contemplative practices, whether it is meditative practice for you, whether it is journaling. Um, I suppose I just mentioned contemplative practice because there are so many and, it is really like finding a pair of shoes. You just have to try them on and see how they fit and go for a walk in them and, um, and see what works for you. Um, but the purpose is to start to, to bring things that maybe have been outside of your awareness back into your awareness. Um, and it's important in that process, um, in, I suppose, the insight meditation tradition, um, we often talk about the wings of awareness, one being awareness and the other being compassion because bringing things that you've um, unconsciously but quite selectively pushed out of awareness back into awareness can be very confronting and for many um, it is I mean that's trauma work um, and so compassion slowness ease is incredibly important there um, mm. so that would be another one is contemplative practice um, and I mean I would also fit in therapy into contemplative practice mm -hmm. um they're practices of cohering the mind they're practices of bringing in more of ourselves back into our own holding um and we build this kind of resilience and discernment um in the ability to steward ourselves in the world like oh 
this happened in between myself and that person. I'm feeling quite anxious. I can notice that I'm not going to um, react in this way or my anger isn't going to leak out in this way mm. and now impact all these other people as well. Cause now I can notice that I'm aware of my body. My nervous system does this because blah, blah, blah. Mm. Um, and so that's, that's one. But the, another one that I'll mention that I just find, uh, yeah, really important is really inhabiting the body. You know, a lot of people come to therapy and um, meditation uh, to work with the mind. Um, a lot of our work actually exists in the body. Mm-hmm. The body has such a deep ability to remember um, implicitly. And a lot of our kind of unraveling exists in the realm of the body somatically. Um, and when we talk about mind in like the psychotherapeutic, uh, I suppose, space, when we say mind, we don't just mean brain. Mind is an embodied relational emergent process. And so mind encapsulates your body, encapsulates your relationship. Um, and uh, also in re-inhabiting the body, we start to awaken the senses again. Um, and by awakening the senses, we are greater able to be in relationship to the world, to notice the sun kiss our skin, to notice the, the waft of incense and how that makes us feel. Um, it's kind of building the bridge between the outer world and the inner world again mm. and noticing that reciprocity. Mm-hmm. Um, and that way we uh, kind of land in relationship again to the world around us. Yeah, beautiful. I'm I'm really glad that you brought up this idea of re-inhabiting the body because that's a realm that I'm feeling really, really inspired by at the moment. This whole kind of dance movement, somatic therapy kind of realm. And I think that's mm. such a big part of restoring wholeness and in, t- in today's day and age, you know, in the modern kind of context. Yeah, I was curious for you, like, does does movement play a specific role for you? Like I know you, you do kind of, you love to dance. Is there anything else mm-hmm. that like, yeah. How, how does that, how does that kind of um, look for you? Like, do you try and move every day or like, what does your kind of movement practice um, look and feel like? Yeah. Um, yeah. I very much exist in my body. I've been a martial artist since six years old. Um, and so there was lots that I'm still unpacking during my teenage years that martial arts was such a great release for, um, anger that I didn't anger that I was scared of myself, um, because of, um, yeah, some influences in the family system, uh, martial arts, kicking, punching the bags. It was such a healthy release, um, for that pent up anger. Um, but movement, yeah, has always been so important to me and, um, I don't train in martial arts anymore for the last four years, but it's still such a big part of it's really informed my living philosophy um, as well. Um, my sensei really taught martial arts and true martial arts is really not about fighting. It's about learning how not to fight. Um, and it's a, a character building practice. Um, and so, uh, and I taught martial arts for a number of years as well and I loved it, but we always our philosophy was that we teach martial arts to get young humans in the door, but when they're in the door, we teach basically self-development. Um, mm. that's just like coated with the fun and play of kicking and punching things. And, um, yeah, so important. Hey, to create healthy spaces to 
release stuck or stagnant energy. And especially when you're going in to do this kind of inner work and you are going through this kind of therapeutic sense and you are restoring parts of yourself that you have exiled and you are bringing, you know, you know, old kind of traumas or past life baggage or just stuff that Mm. needs to be worked through when you are, yeah, reintegrating it back into the wholeness of who you are with compassion. It requires, um, well, what I'm coming to learn (laughs) through my own experience is it requires a really safe um, and healthy space to be released through the body. And it's such Mm -hmm. an important part of this work. Yeah. Yeah. At the moment I'm loving the car with the door shut and my mouth wide open screaming down the highway. Um, (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But uh, yeah, so I absolutely adore the body and I feel it deeply when I'm not able to move. Like our body, it's our seat of consciousness. It's, It's our way of being in relationship to the world. When the body shuts down, our horizon of what's possible and of who we are shuts down. We collapse. Um, You just have to look at someone's posture if they're in a depressed mood to see how the body and emotion and mind and spirit are deeply related. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And again, this is the work of broadening our circles of awareness or our metacognition is to notice, oh, body is like this. How does that feel to me? What am I thinking? What images are coming up when my body's in this position? Mm-hmm. Oh, if I shift this position, oh, different kinds of images come up. I feel different. Mm-hmm. Um, so to notice that relationship. Um, but yeah, I think uh, right now, I was going to say, especially, and maybe more than ever, it's incredibly important that we learn healthy ways to use anger um, and these what our culture might push to the side is kind of wild emotions and not allowed or not okay. Um, Cause all emotions are incredibly important when they're in the right place. Uh, and rage, well not, maybe not rage, anger is an incredibly important emotion and very connected to passion. Um, and if we can learn to feel our anger, it tethers us to what our needs are, what our boundaries are and what we care about most. Um, and it may be a direct channel to some of our deepest work. Um, and so learning, relearning, remembering healthy ways to, to be with anger, um, and for our world to have role models of what it looks like to, yeah, I'm fucking angry, but I'm not leaking it everywhere. I'm not angry at you. I'm angry. And that's telling me my need. And now I can compassionately tell you what my need is, Mm. um, so to be able to, to model what anger can look like in a healthy way. Um, yeah. Mm. Just imagine if it's our so, world. Yeah. I was just, I just got this level of excitement. Like I was like, Ima- yeah. Imagine <laughs> if our leaders were, you know, that conscious and aware to operate from that level. Like imagine the world that we would live in it would be so mm. different. Yeah. It would be full. Mm. Um, yeah. I was going to say it would be, bright and happy, but no, it would be just full. But um, yeah, we just have to look at the animal kingdom to learn a lot. You know, how the gazelle, when it's chased down by a tiger, will, will go into usually flight uh, response. Um, I think evolutionarily they've learned they can't fight. So they, f- they flight, they run. Uh, but as soon as the tiger is able to get a hold of it and, and gnaw its teeth into the gazelle, it'll go into freeze, which is what our nervous system does 
when it's a, a dangerous situation, we go into fight or flight. When it's life threatening, we go into freeze. That's the trauma. Um, when energy is stuck and we've gone into freeze, but the gazelle, when it goes into freeze, the tiger or the predator will, um, will go away to get its cubs and come back. And then the gazelle will slowly stand up and just shake itself off. Um, so that the, the emotion, the energy that's moving through its body can release Mm -hmm. and complete its line of movement. Then Mm -hmm. it will just go away. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's we the don't part do that. that we miss. Yeah, we don't do that. We don't do the shaking and the moving and the releasing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. in some sense, it's a it's a powerful force, and um, a lot of trauma, uh, I suppose, experts talk about that. Part of the reason we freeze is because we're scared of our own power and what might happen if we do let our emotion really express itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we feel safer to lock it in. Mm-hmm. Um, but we turn it then against ourselves um, and become our own predator. Mm. Yeah. So just to kind of conclude that little um, personal technologies and the different kind of fragments of that or the, or the inner, inner kind of work, as you could call it as mm. well. So there's slowness, these self-reflective practices, therapy and re-inhabiting the body. Mm-hmm. So if we're, if we're going to move into the kind of social um, aspects, you know, one thing kind of comes to my mind, which is like, um, learning, you know, nonviolent communication and relational kind of skills. Um, what kind of fragments fall under the social umbrella for you? Mm. Um, well, I heard something yesterday. Our friend said that, um, uh, we were just talking about kind of the yoga of relationship, uh, and, a teacher of mine says that the purpose of yoga is to give a better hug. Um, and <laughs> I suppose that just speaks to the, in some sense, the purpose of this inner work and not only, but in some sense, the purpose of the inner work is to be better at the interwork is to be better at relating together. Um, you can't really meet another if you can't meet yourself. Um, and so, yeah, I suppose just to, to frame that, of course, they're deeply related, the inner and th- they're all related. Um, mm. The inner, the inter and the outer work um, and the beyond work, Yosh, mm. the transpersonal. Mm. Um, but I'd say one uh, that is maybe just really damn practical. Um, and for those who don't know of Brene Brown, a brilliant social researcher um, who writes a lot about courage, vulnerability, shame, um, but the importance of having courageous conversations or what she calls rumbles, uh, which is learning to speak to people, not about people. Um, and I mean, that's what nonviolent communication is all about. It's about acknowledging your inner state. This is how I feel. These are my needs that were either not met or violated. Um, and then having the courage because you have interpersonal skills, you now have the courage to actually go up and assert those needs in a compassionate way that is inviting and not shaming or blaming or judging. Um, and so the interpersonal skills um, and uh, therapeutically, um, many of us grow up you know, through attachment theory, many of us lack interpersonal skills that mean we actually don't know how to have our needs met um, because we just simply don't know how to talk about it in ways that feel safe Um, because we haven't been modeled what safe conversation around needs or boundary violations 
what they look like. And so we just don't know actually how to look after ourselves in relationship. Um, and so it's building interpersonal skills and nonviolent communication is a great one to start to become familiar, even with like building your emotional literacy. So you can actually talk about your emotions. This is, this is shame. I feel it here in my body. Um, this is fear. I fear it, feel it here in my chest. Um, this is attraction. I fear it, feel it all over. Mm. Um, <laughs> but whatever it is, like being able to relate to your inner world, your emotions, and then have language for them um, is, is a big part of the social technology. So emotional literacy. And if you go on the nonviolent communication website, they have a list of feelings and a list of needs, um, which is just really useful to maybe to skim through. Um, and just notice which ones stand out and which ones you're like, Oh, never actually felt what that feeling might feel like in my body before. Um, so building that emotional literacy means that you can then talk about it with others. Um, so that's one is courageous conversations. Uh, and as Brene Brown would say, choosing discomfort over resentment. So being able to speak about your needs and your boundaries up front so that you give yourself and others the best chance at um, honoring and meeting your needs. So then you don't end up resenting them later on. So yeah, a lot of, I mean, the social and relational work is very much about coming, becoming more in touch with our own inner landscape, building the literacy uh, and the language to communicate it. Um, and then kind of flexing that muscle of, of courageous conversation Encourage means, well, is rooted in the, the Latin word core, which means voice of the heart or to speak from the heart. And it's about um, having those conversations that feel deeply scary because they have to do with our emotions and our heart. Mm. Um, and so that's a, a big, big one. Mm. Uh, I suppose in all of this, and we spoke a little bit about self-regulatory practices being kind of shaking it off and letting emotion complete its movement but co-regulation is such a big um part of relationships and community building um our nervous systems are constantly in relationship uh evolutionarily that's how we build safety mm. and belonging um and so we are always co-regulating but uh, in relationship you can be intentional about how you co-regulate if you notice that someone may be a little bit hyper aroused or, or stressed, you can intentionally regulate your own nervous system uh, by deepening your breath. Uh, and without even having to say anything, you will notice the other person uh, and their nervous system start to calm just in your presence. No words necessary. Um, and so there's also the starting to sense, uh, as my podcast is called, Spaces Between, starting to sense the space between us. Um, the intersubjective field or the relational field where beyond words and before words, our bodies are actually in relationship all the time and are constantly trying to sync up and be in harmony um, because that's safety. And so just starting to notice the space between in the relational field, um, which we say becoming more process oriented rather than outcome oriented. So when you become interested in relationship and interested in how you relate, um, you know, most people think it's weird to talk about, so how's our relationship going? Um, they just prefer just to be in it, but it's incredibly important to actually check in as to 
the process of relating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Creating a language with the invisible. Yes. So I have two, um, two other little avenues that I would love to briefly go down before we kind of um, close off the conversation and close off the container. Um, mm-hmm. And then I have um, a couple of questions that came through on my Instagram um, stories from the community and a couple of questions that came through for you. So one of these little avenues that I would like to go down is this idea of form and flow or another way of um, speaking to it is structure and spontaneity. Mm. And I think this is really relevant for us because we are both podcast hosts. And I think this is a really important um, kind of concept, you know, like how do we find a balance between form and flow or structure and spontaneity um, in guiding the conversation? And then how does that also translate into other parts of our lives? So I was wondering if you could share, like, what's your relationship to structure versus flow and you know, do you create the structure and then find flow within that? Or do you prefer to just go with the flow and allow structure to appear from that flow space? Mm. Oh, big questions. Um, yeah, I suppose for me, it, my, I suppose my journey with uh, form and flow or structure and spontaneity kind of began when I was obsessed with my morning routine in my teenage years. Um, and like doing the, what do they call it? Like the, um, mm, something about like the, I don't know, the glorious morning or like the magnificent, well, there's lots of books around having the perfect morning because the morning sets up your day. And, um, so I took it at sometimes way too serious and I would create so much structure or form. Um, and I loved it. Part of, well, part of me loved it. Um, but of course there were parts that were like, I don't want to, I can meditate this morning or I don't want to journal um, or yeah, it just felt like when I didn't do it for a day, of course I'd be super down with myself um, just way too in what you could say archetypically my mask. Um, mm. And so then I tried the opposite and um, we just get caught in kind of complacency and uh, just not, Oh, I don't need to do that this morning on no, I'm going to be gentle with myself. And, and I'd end up just be like super gentle with myself all the time. And which meant that I didn't really need to, or I didn't end up doing anything. Um, and then I started trying to find the middle way. Um, and so I would create containers of time. So from like six thirty to seven thirty is what I, labeled like mbbe mind with breath breath with body body with earth and my whole intention so i'd create containers of time and intentions for that container of time whatever that intention showed up as would be what i went with that morning so i might do qigong i might go for a run i might do yoga i might dance um but whatever it is that comes up in relationship to what my intention was for that container of time uh, I would do. Uh, and it felt really nice. Um, would you and, sometimes do, would, sorry, just quickly, would you sometimes do nothing? Would you allow yourself to do nothing sometimes if that's what was coming through? Yeah. Yeah. If laying there and um, like laying in bed and like reflecting on my dreams and then feeling my senses and like choosing to inhabit my body again for the day and 
if that was me connecting with my mind with my breath my breath with my body and body with earth Mm. um then that's fine um basically at the end of that container of time i wanted to feel in relationship to mind breath body earth um and that was my intention and so i suppose that's constantly an ongoing uh pilgrimage and journey for me is noticing that oh i've lost the kind of the intentionality or the zest with my practices um and my practices have me now i don't have my practices if that makes Mm -hmm. sense like they've lost the yeah the depth um so finding but also i suppose uh, i mentioned the discipline piece because i've also just started to yeah find the real gift in discipline like we showing up today for the call um when it may have been uh also appropriate to say actually no let's gift ourselves space and gentleness and tenderness um we we showed up um and there's a real gift in that uh and it teaches and has taught me so much about um also about worthiness that it's okay to show up with this as well um and so I suppose it, it is a, a real, um, yeah, a real paradox uh, mm-hmm. and just a real, um, yeah, an ongoing journey of noticing mm-hmm. when is form in service and when is flow in service. Mm-hmm. Um, and only we can know that and it's very contextual. Um, and so for me, it's a matter of sensitivity, discernment and honoring. Can I be sensitive to the moment can i honor um, what my needs are um and as long as that's the case it's okay Mm. yeah it's a it's a choice moment to moment isn't it yeah Mm. yeah yeah so this final thing i'd love to touch on is um that i'm curious about um because i'm sure we can all relate to it in some way is what has this time in covid revealed to you what have you, I know this is a big question, but you know, what have you moved through that perhaps you wouldn't have if we weren't in a global pandemic? Mm. Um, great question again. Um, for me in the beginning, I mean, there's, it's been so long in lockdown here in Melbs that there've been so many different little mini chapters. Um, the first chapter was me noticing this busyness and this kind of a, a addiction to work and uh, it as a kind of avoidance. Um, and I suppose I really, in working with my therapist and different circles and um, really went deep into what is behind this, like how is it that I'm um, in isolation, in lockdown, and I still feel as busy, if not busier than beforehand. Um, how is it that I can clear my calendar and then just like a vacuum, it's just all gone. Um, and so really went into kind of deep process with that and yeah, tracked it back to deep, uh, yeah, exiled parts of myself and, and that shame again. Um, and the addiction to kind of yes and, and work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that was, kind of, yeah, like mm-hmm. the first chapter and I think another one, I mean, there were many, but another one that I'll mention because we spoke about it uh, earlier as well was the, this piece around belonging mm-hmm. um, and belonging to myself. Um, and, and it was related to this 
to the work piece, just noticing how easy it is. I, how easy I find it to say yes to things, to people, to opportunities, to online webinars and online courses that I really don't need to, or have time to do, but I sign up for, um, what is it about this? Yes. Um, and that for me, based on my history, it's really rooted in wanting to belong. Um, and wanting to kind of maintain, um, relationship with people. And so wanting to meet their needs and say yes, and not having the comfort again to say no and have those difficult conversations. Um, and that for me there, I feel at times my freedom, my truth, my boundaries, my ability to say no, um, is in competition to my belonging. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And so that the more I stand in my, in my truth, um, the less I'll belong somehow. And uh, yeah, I mean, this shows up a lot in kind of relationship counseling and therapy. It's usually um, in a partnership, one person might be more oriented towards freedom and the other person might be more oriented towards connection. Um, and it creates this push-pull dynamic sometimes. Mm. Um, oh yeah, I know that one. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but for me, just really went deep into all the multiple ways that this um, little thread and whisper within me that says that the more you express yourself, the less you'll belong. Um, the more you are authentic in yourself, the less you'll be accepted. Um, shows up, and mm, it's yeah, I so think, the opposite. Hey, yeah, mm. exactly. Belonging mm. is not. And again, Brene Brown talks about this a lot. Mm. Um, love her that uh, belonging is not about fitting in. At first, when you ask someone, what does belonging mean? Um, what comes up often is fitting in, and that's not, not it at all. It's kind of being so loudly who you are and that being so warmly welcomed. Um, for me this week, reflecting on just the culture that, it, the culture that I seem to be wanting to belong to mm-hmm. and actually how that culture itself doesn't belong to the whole. Mm. And so... Uh, I, and I'll quite confidently say many of us, we are trying to belong to a culture that doesn't belong to, you know, the lived world, to our ecologies, to nature, to, to the more than human. Um, and so are we searching for something, uh, in a place where we won't actually find it? Something being that, you know, that spiritual yearning that is very hard to satiate. Um, and maybe we never will until we are uh, on the other side of death again. Um, and maybe that's the grand paradox mm. is that we are in this body trying to satiate a spiritual hunger. Mm. Um, Ooh, nice. and, and yeah, the, the apple that is our culture is not going to do that. Mm. Um, and so we need to remember how to belong to something more than the human world. Mm. Um, and that for me has been a kind of invitation in belonging to myself. Um, also recognizing that myself is the more than human world. I think we have just time for maybe two of these um, questions that came through on Instagram. Um, mm-hmm. First one is from Ella and she asked, how do you overcome fear or uncertainty about the future? Mm. Good question. Um, yeah. I've been in, I mean, during lockdown sitting with and writing a lot about the, again, the paradox of hope and heartbreak and uh, just noticing where I sit in that. And when I have, um, I suppose, hope and uncertainty about the future, I'm someone who tends to fling myself towards hope. 
And so I'll look at the silver lining and I'll kind of rest in a hopeful future and um, avoid, yeah, maybe the, the heavier and difficult for me emotions around heartbreak, despair, uncertainty and anxiety. Uh, and so for me, uh, this time has been a real invitation actually to, to be in the depths of despair and heartbreak and to not just fling to this kind of wishful thinking, which I've experienced in me as creating a kind of complacency where I don't actually take strong action because I'm just kind of swimming in this sea of, oh, it's all going to be okay. And this is just a cocoon for our spiritual awakening. And, and so for me, I have had to learn and the invitation has been to, to choose to be in relationship to that fear and anxiety actually. Mm -hmm. Um, and trust that on the other side of that will, will be a hope that is, or Margaret Wheatley says the place beyond hope and heartbreak where Mm -hmm. it's neither of them alone, but both of them and more. And so I would just say, um, maybe just reflect on where you are in that. Do are you someone who tends to maybe swing more towards heartbreak? Um, and is maybe more challenged in seeing the silver lining or hope um, and therefore practices such as gratitude or noting your achievements for the day and starting to, um, yeah, to build some of those kind of more hopeful oriented uh, ways of thinking and neural pathways might be, might be the invitation. Um, or if like me, you do tend to orient towards hope and sidestep um, heartbreak maybe that's a confronting invitation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just like that as a, a bit of a kind of a, a check-in of where you are in between those two. Mm. Um, and then just asking, so what's the invitation here if I'm going to include both of them as equal? Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah. Mm. I'd just like to add to that. Um, <laughs> I think there's an interesting, you know, word in there, overcome how do I overcome fear or uncertainty? And it's almost like the sense of like, mm. Oh, I have to sidestep it. I have to cut, I have to get over it. But I think the real answer is go in, go into it. And as yeah. you said, build a relationship with it. And I think once we fully allow, which is, yeah, <laughs> just so present for me right now, like fully surrender, go into the fear, go right into the center of uncertainty from that place, from that darkness and from that void, the seed of creation is there. Oh, <laughs> oh so good. Okay. Last question I have for you um, is from someone called Kurosho. Interesting name. Um, Lovely name. Yeah, I'm into it. Thoughts on using entheogens for self-healing? Yeah. Um, psychoactive plants. Psychoactive plants. You got it, baby. Yeah. Many thoughts. Actually just had... Um, a friend Paul Austin from third wave on my podcast yesterday. So that one's coming out soon. It's all around microdosing and psychedelic use for transformation and healing. Um, Refer to the latest podcast. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Yeah. I am very much in, in support of uh, entheogens and um, plant medicine, psychedelics for intentional uses and in really supporting us in stewarding consciousness. Um, Again, looking to many indigenous cultures, um, there's been many, uh, I suppose, anthropologists and cultural um, observers who comment on the absolute uh, gift that plant medicines offered cultures in that time to live in relationship, to remember relationship, to, again, awaken those senses, 
to be in relationship to the invisible realm and to to live that realm in this world. Um, so I'm very much uh, for it. It's really supported me in many, many ways. Um, and it's an area that I um, see myself in in the next few years once I've finished my psychotherapeutic training to be in the um, psychedelic assisted space because it's been so beneficial to me. And I see it as crucial to the evolution of our of our psyche mm. um, as a species. Um, and yeah, I suppose I just note and just always like to mention um, the absolute importance to bring such a deep reverence to, to these practices and medicines, mm. um, acknowledging lineage, acknowledging the deep history and the power of them. Um, they are tools. Uh, and of course, it's our intention and reverence and, and love that we bring to them. Um, and so, uh, tread with grace and yeah, welcome the teachers. Mm. Beautiful. Well said. Thank you. Well, beautiful Al, (laughs) I just adore you and I love you so much. And it's been, yeah, such a beautiful, I can't believe we've been talking for an hour and a half. (laughs) It's been so good. I'm yeah, really grateful for you showing up today, even in your tenderness and um, softness. I think, as I said in the beginning, I think there is a real beauty in showing up in that space and look at all the goodness that flowed out of you. Um, is there anything else you'd like to to share or say to everybody listening? Um, I would just say, firstly, thank you, Yash. You said everything that flowed out of me, but really it's everything that flowed between us. Mm. Um, So thank you. (laughs) And I would just say to everyone that again, slowness and remembering the grace and that you already know, you already know. Uh, And you know, our, our remembering, our grounding, our arriving is always as, as close as a breath away. And yeah. So may we all remember, may we all, tend to the sweet spaces between the relationships um, in all levels and bring sensitivity to ourselves and um, slowly reweave a world that uh, acknowledges all of who we are. Mm. Yeah. I was just going to ask you, what are the ways that people can connect to you and your work and to yeah find out more about you and also listen to your amazing podcast spaces between um, yeah. How can people find you and your work and connect mm. with you? Yeah. Well, Spaces Between the podcast is on uh, yeah, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, all the places. But the best place to connect is probably my website, aljeffrey.com, J-E-F-F-E-R-Y. Um, and on there are all the, the links, lots of free resources, meditations, um, and also my uh, musings, which is just a fortnightly newsletter that I send out with poetry Ooh, and philosophy. Oh, I love that. Newsletter. Um, That's yeah. And so, yeah, it's a great way to stay in touch. And I, yeah, curate the little newsletters. Um, so it's a top up of philosophy to help and practices to help us live, live in this way. Um, and also just on Instagram at L Jeffrey underscore. Um, mm. Love to stay in tune. Beautiful. Yeah. And I'll leave all the links for all the ways in which you can connect with Al and all of the things that we've mentioned in this podcast too. Um, I'll leave links for all of those in the show notes below. So it is all there one click away. (laughs) Beautiful. 
Oh, thank you, beautiful Al. I love you so much. And yeah, it's been such a pleasure having you on today. Right, that concludes episode nine. Thank you all so much for listening and being here and sharing space with us today. Both Al and I really appreciate it. Um, and remember, the digital version of the Bloom Journals are over on my Patreon page and ready for you to dive into some self inquiry and reflection. And as always, if you did enjoy this episode, it really means a lot and helps me out if you would like to share it with a friend um, or share it on your Instagram story, whatever you want to do, um, tag me in it so I can see it and also spread the love. Um, yeah, it really helps me out and it may help someone else out too who could find some value in listening. I really look forward to sharing space with you guys again next month. We are going to be joined by a beautiful woman named Samantha. She is a menstrual educator and mentor, um, a really beautiful woman, and her whole philosophy is around cyclical living. Um, And yeah, we had a really beautiful conversation, which I'm really excited to share with you guys next month. So make sure you do subscribe if you haven't already and tune into that episode, which will be coming out in December. All right. In the meantime, take care. I'm sending you so much love and I will speak to you all soon.